Welcome to Copcast. I'm Rumbi Chakamba, Associate Editor at DevEx, and I've headed to Sham el-Sheikh in Egypt for this year's United Nations Climate Conference. In this podcast series, we bring you inside the walls of the Blue Zone for a series of in-depth conversations with climate and development leaders, asking them the big questions. What's really needed to make meaningful progress towards climate goals and what role should the development community play to support that? Without question, this is a health emergency. The question is how do we get people to care about that health emergency? Ahead of COP27, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, WHO Director General, issued a stark reminder for global leaders. Climate change is making millions of people sick or more vulnerable to disease all over the world. And it is crucial that leaders and decision makers come together at COP27 to put health at the heart of the negotiations. Although there is a WHO pavilion, health does not feature on the official COP agenda. DevEx's senior reporter, Sarah Jerving, sat down with Vanessa Carey, founder of the non-profit Seed Global Health, to talk about the urgent need to formally include health in the COP proceedings. Thanks so much for joining us, Vanessa. I'm delighted to be here. So Seed Global Health has a focus on training doctors, nurses, and midwives globally. Can you tell uh, us a bit about why you're here at COP27? Absolutely. I'm here at COP27 to advocate strongly for the importance of focusing on on climate change as a need to address major health issues that are happening in the world. About 23% of the world's burden of disease is actually related to climate, um, some kind of climate-related event. And when we think about our human sustainability and well-being, the our health and well-being, our climate and the resources we have to sustain ourselves are deeply interlinked. And so I'm here to help draw attention to that and to hopefully help propel some of the actions um, around climate change and to have folks realize that investments in our climate change can also be strong investments in our health systems and a win-win. So health is not officially on the agenda at COP. Um, Why is that and kind of what are you doing to change that? Um, well, it's interesting because I would say health is not, it's not officially in the agenda of COP, but it's 100% the agenda of COP in many ways because of the rise in burdens of disease that we are seeing from extreme heat, from air pollution, cardiovascular diseases are going up. There's already 29 new outbreaks of cholera this year alone, which is way above what we usually see, and all this is related to climate change. So all the discussions we are having here today actually relate to human health and how we are going to protect that. Um, We would like it to be officially, though, on an agenda. And we are petitioning to try to see really a formal agenda around the intersection of health and climate change uh, at next year's COP in the UAE and onwards. Because at the end of the day, that really um, tight sort of interlink between health and climate is also about security. It's about economic growth. It's about gender equality, um, it it relates to all of these key issues for our well-being. And what would be the significance of having it officially on the agenda at next year's COP? Kind of what could that do to further drive an emphasis around health, the the intersection of health and climate? I think, you know, anytime things are formally recognized, there's an opportunity, I think, to much more strongly propose solutions and to build the collaborations and the attention and resources that are needed to actually solve a problem. So just to give an example, 
you know, Seed Global Health trains health workforce, which is I, critically important to the adaptation of climate change with the additional 250,000 deaths that are gonna come from climate change. Um, we need a workforce to address that. And so to be able to build out that workforce, you need sort of money and time and attention. And, and so by putting something formally on the agenda, you can start to mobilize the resources that are needed to help mount that response and to build out that frontline emergency response for a country like Uganda, where over half the deaths are from a failure of emergency and triage services. And a lot of that is related to you know, climate related events. Um, and so I think when it becomes formal, you also have the opportunity to engage other sectors. And so we are going, this is a multi-sector problem. Health does, you know, if there is an additional, for every dollar invested in health, you can get two to four dollars out in returns economically. 7% increase in GDP or 4.4 trillion by 2040 if we start to invest in people's health. But, so that's got a multi-sector reach. So we have to engage multiple sectors in these solutions. And you, the formal agenda really allows that opportunity. And so in what buckets of discussion uh, would health fit under? Does it have relevance in both adaptation and loss and damage? And kind of, uh, you alluded to kind of these investments in the workforce, kind of what, what do you see as smart investments in the adaptation or loss and damage space? So without question, it's both. I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, the rise of greenhouse gases and that impact is a direct impact on health. And most people around the world, their main asset is their ability to do labor and to work and to earn their living. And so when you are directly impacted, you cannot go to work from chronic pulmonary disease or a heart attack or something else. That is a very direct loss that is, that is you know, impacted by health. So the adaptation is our ability to focus on prevention, public health measures, and to be able to um, have a workforce that can actually address these increased burdens of disease. That is win-win too. We just came out of a pandemic of COVID that was arguably we are still in. Um, and, you know, the loss of COVID was tremendous. What COVID helped illustrate for us, though, is that primacy of health and everything that we're trying to do. And so, you know, we also, what it did was it highlighted the fact that we don't have a healthcare workforce, for example, needed to address that COVID. And what we found in SEED is, you know, we've trained almost 40,000 healthcare workers in seven countries over the last 10 years. Those healthcare workers might be delivering baby one day, but then they were diagnosing the COVID another day with a handheld ultrasound and helping to respond to that. They are then helping to treat cholera as it hits in, in, you know, in Malawi. So the flexibility to address all of these diseases that we see in climate change through workforce is critical. That is one of, you know, it's one of the key things that we are trying to push for. Our ability to reduce our greenhouse gases is a win-win because not only is it going to protect our environment and save our oceans and ensure that we have less, you know, uh, storms and floods, but it is also going to be a protection to our health and well-being, which we, you know, has that positive feedback loop to everything else. So, one of the one of the issues with climate change is. Um, kind of the intersection of um, humans and wildlife. And uh, as resources become more strained, uh, people are have greater impact with wildlife. And so I was listening to the, the Global Health Summit recently and the, um, the head of the WHO Regional Af uh, Africa office said that that was one of the problems with um, the Ebola outbreak in Uganda right now is that uh, the the outbreak was able to spread because there was not adequate workforce in that area. Could you talk a bit about uh, uh, 
resource gaps in, in the health workforce and how that is linked to climate in that sense too for new outbreaks. So there is a global critical shortage of healthcare workforce today that is slated to grow by 2030 um, if we don't do anything about it. This was exacerbated even further by the COVID pandemic, which cost, as of November of last year, 180,000 healthcare workers and likely far more than that since the pandemic has continued. And so what you're seeing is that some countries will have only three doctors for every 100,000 people versus where I live, it's somewhere more in the you know 240s. And so the numbers are, the ability to care for a population is diminished, but it also means the ability to detect pandemics is diminished. And if you look at a country like Liberia or West Africa, which had a terribly bullet outbreak in 2014, 2015, and this relates a little bit to what we see in Uganda, a single toddler who had Ebola crossed the border into another country. The symptoms weren't recognized because there wasn't enough workforce that had been trained in this. That toddler went on to be the spark that ignited a global outbreak that affected over 26,000 people, killed over 11,000, and affected over six countries and was a $53 trillion downturn. And that really relates because there wasn't enough healthcare workforce to recognize what was happening to sound the alarm and to be able to ask for the help and to mount that help. Everybody said never again, lesson learned after that outbreak and you know, millions was poured into the region to help do preparedness and surveillance. And you know, uncoupled to sustained investment and to really building out that sustained investment needed for workforce, Liberia as an example country now is among the you know, 70 countries least prepared for a pandemic outbreak and yet this is the one that should be the most learned. There's incredible knowledge, but the infrastructure isn't there in full because the investments weren't supported. You need to make um, sustained and long-term investments over time to be able to really build out that resilience in the network. And so Liberia, for example, is a country that now is among the least prepared because that full panel of infrastructure wasn't sustained. There was initial investments for a couple of years and then they said go off and do it alone. But these are countries whose GDPs are just too low. Even if they are already dedicating a significant percentage of their GDP to health, you're still asking people to deliver health care for a cup of coffee. And that's not going to work. Yet, if we build out these resilient and full workforces, you will have the surveillance needed to be able to protect populations, to be trained to identify these outbreaks, even in the most remote settings, and to respond immediately. For example, actually in Uganda, where they have made investments in healthcare workforce, um, and where we've had, they have a mortality rate of Ebola now that is about 40%, which is unheard of in Sub-Saharan Africa prior to this, um, for this particular strain that doesn't have a vaccine. Without question, Uganda had faced challenges in the rural areas because there's not enough healthcare workforce to help identify, and that did allow for some of the initial spread of Ebola as it happened. But Uganda has experienced Ebola before as they were very proactive and they started to identify the cases and do the contact tracing and bring the cases to places where there was a deeper density of healthcare workforce and applied that workforce and the knowledge to treat Ebola. They've been able to help show a much different and lower mortality rate than you've seen traditionally in Ebola outbreaks where there's not a vaccine in the past. And so going you know, from historic mortality rates of 90% down to closer to 40%, really speaks to what's possible when you have a workforce available to treat. You need enough of that though. So, you know, you could have stopped that in tracks within the rural districts if you'd had enough of a workforce available. And the aspirations are there for these countries, but they need the help and support to be able to make those investments and to see that plan out in full. You know, the healthcare workforce is the backbone of the health system. There is, it is, healthcare is a human-centered intervention. 
And it is not going to get solved by technology. It is not going to get solved solely by telemedicine. Those are bridges. We need people to lay hands on a patient, to change a bandage, to be able to, even if you're going to die, to let you die with dignity. And I think that we cannot forget that in this day and age. And so um, it, it, the workforce for me is a tide that lifts all boats because it is job creation. It is gender equity where 70% of jobs are women. It is our climate adaptation. It is our ability to respond to the diseases that are you know, preventing countries from growing and thriving and having economic growth. It's security. It'll stem migration if we can have systems that are responsive to their population. And so I think we have a choice right now to make, and it is to either invest in our long-term resilience and human sustainability, or to continue going the way we have been, which is only becoming more and more divided, more and more troublesome, and frankly, is just not sustainable. Climate change has been named the biggest threat facing humanity by the World Health Organization. Yet too often, climate change and global health are treated as separate, unrelated issues. In a new series from DevEx, we explore the impacts of the climate crisis on human health around the world and how a planetary health perspective can help provide solutions. Search for DevEx Planet Health to find out more. The challenges that uh, we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic was that because it is a new disease, the information was rapidly evolving and so there was a challenge around training the work health force on the new updates of, of treating patients and whatnot. And that is relevant to the climate discussion as well because uh, diseases are taking new form uh, and uh, increasing in certain areas that they weren't present before. How do you keep the work, how do you continually train um, the health workforce in a, in a changing world? Well, I think at the end of the day, healthcare is uh, a life journey of lifelong learning. We are taught in training to be lifelong learners and there's always going to be new science and there's always going to be new evolution, so there should be because it empowers us to get better at our job. I do think this is an example where technology can be leveraging. If you have the people able to provide care, you can use technology to help update them. And we've had some robust partnerships where we've been able to use um, technology, digital systems, remote learning to be able to augment people's understanding of best practices. It has to be coupled to in-person though, because at the end of the day, you can draw on a chalkboard how to manage high blood pressure, but it's still very different when you see a patient who might not quite be on that perfect bell curve of what a patient with high blood pressure looks like. And so learning through experience is very important. Um, but we, you know, I think that we, we're very lucky that we partner directly with the ministries as well, so we can get to scale quickly when we have the interventions to be able to share. But I think, you know, Seed's job is to bring those best practices to our partners and to work together to um, put those best practices, you know, into place. And it's really a dual partnership with those um, that we're in service to. And we identify together what is the information needed and work together to bring that training out. But we'll do it in any number of ways, at the bedside, through technology, through, you know, sharing updates and best practices, but, um, and using our partners, you know, at the ministry and elsewhere to help scale that quickly. 
So earlier this morning, uh, we walked past your father, John Kerry, who is engaging in these discussions as the U.S. presidential envoy for climate change. Has your father's global role on this issue influenced your work on climate? I mean, I grew up in a house of public service. Both my parents were public servants um, in very different ways, and I think that influence has been a part of my life since the day I was born. We are global citizens, and we have a responsibility to be a part of you know, being in service to those around us. Um, my father has been a climate champion since before I was born. And I grew up going to Earth Day as a child and have been very aware of this incredibly precious resource that we have. Um, you know, and he's, it's funny, it's anything from being, when I was little, dragged, what felt like being dragged, you know, to walks in the woods to just listen and appreciate and understand. And then as I've gotten older, it's been through the really severe understanding through really real, uh, conversations that happen at the dinner table, the severe, you know, risks that we face and really the urgency of this moment. So I learned from it. I'm deeply privileged to be able to, um, you know, have that, you know, resource to draw on in many ways. But it's also, uh, you know, I think that I will have enough, um, you know, hubris to say also I think I'm teaching him about the ways that health has been really front and center in these climate discussions and it so I think it's a you know it's a huge influence for me but I think it's also a torch that I carry very much on my own at this point in terms of the implications of what it means for our human health and what we are up against if we you know don't do something about this and um, we're talking about the most sort of fundamental issues of our human sustainability and future is the climate that we draw on for all of our resources and to live, and the health that we need to be able to walk outside our front door to care for our families and to go to work. And those are deeply, deeply interlinked. And so um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to learn from him. And I, I hope I'm contributing in the way that you know, supports him too. And I'm not sure that everyone considers climate change a health emergency. Would you agree with that and kind of how do we change that narrative? I think a lot of people don't consider climate a health emergency and I think we are running an uphill battle because a lot of people don't see health actually as central to their daily lives, right? You do when you lose a family member to cancer. You do when somebody has a heart attack. It hits you full on and suddenly when health is personal, you value health. When health is theoretical because you were young and healthy or it doesn't impact you as much or you're more worried about your economic bottom line, it's sometimes hard to make that link between health and you know your personal daily life but the reality is there's tons of data that say that when you fall ill your household is more likely to suffer catastrophic costs that will put you below the poverty line we see that in cancer 50 percent of households in uh, non-communicable disease like heart disease 25 percent of households um, we know very directly that you know there's we can see this on a larger macroeconomic level as well but the health emergency is just the, you know, the amount of outbreaks and pandemics is, is way up. We have direct health emergencies from extreme heat, which causes premature births. We have health emergencies in terms of the climate change and the storms and the monsoons and the flooding. I mean, there are millions still completely displaced in Pakistan. And there's an expected internal migration of 216 million people from climate change that is expected in, in the future. And when you look at those numbers, you're losing access to your resources, to, to health, to your well-being. And so without question, this is a health emergency. The question is, how do we get people to care about that health emergency 
in the frame of losing your housing or losing something else and having that be the top priority. And I think, you know, realizing the the um, coexistence of these issues is one and the same. The solutions also become one and the same in many ways as well. But I think people have to realize that we are up against um, one of the major challenges of our time. And those health burdens are gonna cost us money, they're gonna cost us lives, they're gonna cost us economic growth, they're gonna fuel migration. So this health emergency in and of itself is about the burden of healthcare that we're going to seek and, and the suffering we will endure but it's gonna have ramifications across every other sector too. So it is a very driving force, I think, you know, within the conversations we're having today, and hopefully we'll be front and center on a formal agenda next year at COP28. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? I think just, you know, it's going to sound a little bit corny, but um, we have a really real moment in time that is, um, we have to sort of grasp and really drastically change. We cannot go back to what we were doing before with just marginal improvements. We have to seismically shift how we live, what we prioritize, and how we're gonna carry this moment forward. And that's incumbent on all of us, every single listener, in their individual behavior change and in what they demand from their policymakers. So we all have to be global citizens, and I just ask people to be a part of that movement for change because can't do it here just among the hundreds of thousands that are here, the tens of thousands that are here at COP. That's got to be, it's got to have a complete, you know, wave of momentum that leaves from here and changes all our behavior. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to COPcast. We'll be publishing episodes every day throughout COP27. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with others you think would be interested in it. You can also leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have some feedback about this episode that you want to share or are at COP and want to let us know what we should be covering, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at devex and at rumbichakamba underscore, or you can drop us an email at podcast at devex.com.